This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. If the best new idea, in my view, of the past 10 years was zero interest rate policy, the battle against inflation is going to be the story of the next decade. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Today, we're doing something a little different, and we have a special guest. Indeed. Our very special guest is Mark DeCambry, editor-in-chief of MarketWatch. Mark is a smart guy. He also happens to be my boss, and we asked him for his thoughts on the best, most notable, most important, or most impactful new ideas in money for the year. And that's what you're going to hear today, a subjective review of some ideas that shaped what was a very big year in money. We couldn't talk about everything, but we covered some important ground, and we hope you'll enjoy the conversation. So, Mark, let's dive in. What, in your view, was one of the most important or impactful ideas in money this year? When I think about this year, Charles, I just really think it's one of of tremendous inflection points on a number of different fronts. Just to kind of set the stage, we're seeing regime change in interest rates, the end of a period of quiescent inflation that the Fed struggled to get under control for years and presumably the end of a period of rampant speculation that gave rise to the birth uh, of everything from crypto and meme stocks to overvalued tech. Now everything feels like it's on the move. And that's really the backdrop for your question from my perspective. So when I think about what the most important ideas of for 2022, I not only think about the things that were important, but also the things that will continue to remain important, at least for 2023. Uh, And with that in mind, I really think it's worth digging into student loans and the potential impact of the debt cancellation on the economy. Now, whether you think this was a good idea or a bad idea, this was a really big idea. Why don't you break it down for us? I mean, a lot of people may have forgotten. What was proposed and why was this such a big idea? So Biden's announcement in August basically allowed for the cancellation of of up to 20,000 in student debt. I think about 90% of the relief will go to households earning less than 75,000 a year. Now, to be sure, much of this is in limbo, legally speaking, but it feels or felt like at least a meaningful step. And when I asked our student loan expert, our reporter and editor, Jillian Berman, who really covers this deftly and and almost exclusively, she explained to me that this is not as drastic as some advocates had hoped for, but she said it's a substantial move forward. 
And for some, it, it's viewed as an important moment in the public debate over how to fund higher education across the country. So we actually did an episode about what would happen if we canceled student debt. And I want to play a short clip from that episode. This is Sabina Zuniga Varela. Having this amount of debt in my life is sort of like having what I think will be the longest relationship I'll ever have in my life because I don't see that it will ever go away. I honestly cannot feasibly see how I will be able to pay off over $200,000 in my lifetime. And that's the thing. You know, there are so many people out there with student debt far in excess of ten dollars or $20,000. And so while the administration's move to try to cancel up to $20,000 of student loan debt for millions of people feels and is a really big deal. For people like Sabina, she'd hardly feel it, wouldn't she? If she's got 200000 and 20000 goes away, does her life really feel all that much different? Yeah, that's a really great point. And I was reading an article recently that talked about how the City University of New York in 1970, the early 70s, every graduate of a New York high school had the right to go to college for free. And CUNY, as it is known, um, City University of New York was at the time in the 70s America's third largest public university system. And it was one of the most open systems for education in really the country until that system of free admission ended also, I think, in the late 70s. So there's certainly precedence for providing assistance, if not free admission, to students. And I think a lot of people talk about the benefits of that being a way to, to charge, if not supercharge, the economy by providing really well-educated students who don't have the burden of debt hanging over their heads. You know, it's funny you talk about the CUNY system. My mother was a graduate of City College, which, you know, is, I guess, now part of the CUNY system. And so college education was not a, a burden to her financially. My father went to college through the GI Bill. So my parents, you know, represent a generation that basically didn't have to worry at all about the cost of college. And what a leg up that gave them as they went on with their lives. And uh, kids today simply don't have that. Yeah, I think the emphasis to me is less on the financial burden piece and more of the economic potential you have when you can start to really focus on, you know, maybe starting a startup or whatever, kicking off any kind of business and choosing the path that you think makes the most sense for you without having to, to think about your payments in the ways that we just heard, which is really tremendously burdensome to your point, Charles. Mark, where do things stand today? I mean, this is still playing out right now. We don't we don't have a definitive word as if this will actually happen. Uh, it certainly is is been proposed, but we're, we're, give us an update on where we're at right now with this. That's a really good question, Charles. So it might be a while before any of this takes effect. So here's the very latest. When the Biden administration formally announced the debt cancellation plan, Republicans in six states sued to block it. The Supreme Court has agreed to settle the matter, which means the 26 million Americans who applied for debt cancellation should have an answer one way or another by the end of June 2023. So, Mark, let's shift gears and talk about another important idea of the past year, one listeners may not be as familiar with. In June of 2022, Amazon bought One Medical, a membership-based operator of primary care clinics. And they spent about $4 billion on this. 
It's a major step in Amazon's ambitious push into healthcare. But Amazon isn't the only major player moving into this area. So what's going on here and what's the big idea? Yeah, primary care has traditionally been viewed as, as sort of the front door to the U.S. healthcare system. And a lot of that is starting to get a look by some particularly large companies. You've got Amazon, you've got CVS and Walgreens that are all looking at getting into primary care in ways that really they hadn't before. And it could make for a pretty seismic change in terms of the way primary care offerings are provided or presented to consumers. Mark, when you talk about primary care, make it clear what exactly you're talking about and how people might experience a visit to the doctor in the way that you're thinking is so important and the way things are changing. I mean, I think we're talking about actually going to stores that you would traditionally buy groceries or goods or other services and and also getting checkups or perhaps also getting visits from a primary care provider through some kind of telehealth app provided by Amazon, provided by Walgreens. We're in the really early stages of this sort of evolution, but it's something that we've been looking at and paying attention to. One thing to note too is people have gotten more comfortable you know, getting care in their home in non-traditional settings. So we might, again, see more of this, not going to a doctor's office, but going to some retail chain to, to get a checkup. Yeah, it's really interesting. And especially with the pandemic, the result of the pandemic has been that so many healthcare professionals have left the field. Yes, yes. And I think that's perhaps what some of these retailers and some of these companies are thinking when they observe this. I think another thing to note, too, is that we've become so comfortable with telehealth that it made up about 13 percent of all primary care at the end of 2021. This is based on some of the reporting from our reporter, Jamie Lee, who's been covering that. You know, back in 2018, it only represented a percent. So the growth in that space over the past three years or so has been really geometric. Amazon has my credit card info. I'm not so sure how wild I am about them having my medical records or how if that's how it's going to play out. I mean, talk about what could be some of the negatives here. You alluded to it, right? You know, some questions around privacy, some questions about the secureness of your data. I think there's a certain demographic that is already comfortable with some portions of that too, Charles, like, you know, Gen Z, millennials may be more comfortable providing those pieces of information. I I think that will, however, become an issue that some of those companies will need to focus on in order to make people comfortable with that. And there certainly will, will I anticipate, be some regulatory intervention, too, to make sure that data is sufficiently protected. Are there any antitrust concerns here, do you think, Mark? I mean, you know, it really does feel like Amazon is taking over the world. Well, Well, that remains to be seen. I think one of the things to know is that presumably they're going into spaces where they see opportunities or gaps, but we'll see how it all plays out and we'll certainly be reporting that closely. Mark, people have been talking about healthcare and how healthcare is going to be disrupted for years. Is it finally happening? I think it's one of those things, my own opinion, of course, I'm far from a medical expert, but my own opinion is that we are starting to see a creeping disruption and we will see how it evolves. And I think we saw glimpses of it during the pandemic with telehealth, 
we see glimpses of it with startups focused on healthcare and providing healthcare in ways that are non-traditional and spaces that are non-traditional. I think that will continue to evolve. I think healthcare, like utilities, is an industry where it's highly regulated and very, very challenging to truly be disruptive. But I think over time, we'll, we'll see some real interesting innovation. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more of MarketWatch Editor-in-Chief Mark DeCambry after this. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, MarketWatch Editor-in-Chief Mark DeCambry shared his thoughts on two of the most important and impactful ideas in money for 2022. But arguably, the next idea is the biggest. So Mark, we've talked about student loan relief and these tectonic shifts in healthcare, but as 2022 comes to an end, what else is on your mind? I'm thinking about tightening and inflation as the new ideas, or I should say, old ideas that have become new again. And I think this is the year, the period even, that that case studies are gonna be made of. And historians really, they dream about this sort of setup that we're seeing now from an experiential standpoint and an experimental standpoint. You know, what happens after a decade-long period of economic expansion engineered by hyper-low interest rates And if the best new idea, in my view, was of the past 10 years was zero interest rate policy, the battle against inflation is going to be the the story of the next decade. And for all the reasons that you think are the most important to us from an economic standpoint, housing, wealth formation, bull markets, asset bubbles, all those things that were created during this past 10 or more years is very much in question in this new era. So as a refresher for listeners, inflation hit a 40-year high of 9.1% back in June of 2022. And in response, the Fed's been doing the only thing they think they can do. It's like there's a minefield and the Fed is trying to get inflation back down to 2% by raising interest rates just enough to slow the economy without tipping it into recession. So it's basically trying to walk this tightrope or navigate this minefield. How do you think it's doing? 
I don't think it's trying to navigate the minefield anymore. I think it's it's basically accepting that a recession is the byproduct of crushing inflation and they don't want to get inflation out of control. They don't want it to become entrenched. The good thing is we're starting to see some signs of cooling. Perhaps the bad thing is when you think about the tools, you know, raising interest rates that the Fed has at its disposal, it's limited in addressing inflation and it's also very retrospective in terms of how they think about, oh, how are we doing? How's it going? You know, so a lot has been done thus far, but I think it remains to be seen how high interest rates will go and what kind of impact that's going to have on the economy. In addition to that, we still don't know how long, how durable inflation will be. So if 2023 is the year we find ourselves into recession, one of the things that I guess I spend a lot of time thinking about is tightening beyond what the central bank is doing, beyond what Powell and the Fed are doing. And that is fiscal policy, right? We've seen historic increase in interest rates, both the magnitude of the rate hikes and and the pace at which the Fed has been raising rates. That's been historic. But fiscal policy has also been tightening at a historic pace. In other words, you know, the government deficit in fiscal year 2021 was $2.8 trillion. But in 2022, it came in at $1.4 trillion, which is 50% lower than the previous year. And so that kind of fiscal tightening that's happening alongside what the Fed is doing just is almost, for me, kind of that recipe that drives us to that ultimate place, which is rising unemployment and a, a, a contraction of, in the economy. In other words, a recession. I don't know how this plays out in terms of whether or not we see recession. If we get into a recession, how deep and severe this one will be. And I think that's the biggest question. And certainly one that's worth thinking about as we look out to the next 10 years, because it's really been a charmed past decade or so, over a decade, right? You know, we've had some really hairy periods that led into this, the great financial crisis, 2008, 2009. And again, born out of that was was crypto and Bitcoin. We had a very long bull market, a very long economic expansion. It makes me think, will we also have a very long downturn? I hope not, but I, I wonder I, about that. I hope not too, Mark. And I will say one of the things that maybe increases my comfort level, I guess, when I think about the recession risks is the fact that Congress did pass a lot of legislation that really hasn't begun to hit the economy yet. And I'm thinking about things like the CHIPS Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, which is depending on which number you want to use, 1.2 trillion or so, or 550 billion of new spending. And then the Inflation Reduction Act, which has got something like 370 billion or so for climate and other kinds of investments in the economy. So that's a lot of legislation that has been passed and is really yet to roll its way into the economy. So on the one hand, a lot of fiscal tightening, but on the other hand, there's stuff baked in that is eventually going to start to find its way into the economy and provide some support, I think. And in some ways, that's the best new idea from the government, that approach. And that's interesting. We shall see how that plays out. I think it's still a big question mark as to whether or not any of that will be enough. 
So as listeners can probably guess, there are quite a few big, important, impactful, uh, notable ideas we didn't get to today. I mean, there's just a lot uh, that happened in 2022. Mark, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to touch on? So many important topics, so little time. And I've really enjoyed this episode with you, Charles and, and Stephanie. I've, I've always wanted to to do Best New Ideas and Money with you guys. There, there are a bunch of other issues. I think one for sure is labor unions and really the rise of, of labor unions in 2022 was and is pretty startling. And I think part of it is around the pandemic and the view that working conditions really have been put into stark relief. So unionization has started to gain more traction and more momentum. Certainly last year and this year, further momentum we've seen from Starbucks and a host of of other places. We've been watching it pretty closely. I think it's a very important idea and we'll see how that continues to play out, particularly as we think about all the things that we've talked about today, the economic environment, will it be one in which labor unions find themselves in the upper hand? So I think that's an important one to watch. Stephanie, one thing is for sure, If 2022 was an important year in money, 2023 is looking just as big, maybe even bigger. Oh, yeah. I think 2023, we're going to find out a lot of things like whether inflation continues to step down and we may learn whether the economy tips into recession or if we're going to get lucky and manage to avoid one. And speaking of the year ahead, that reminds me, for the next two weeks, we'll be revisiting some of our favorite episodes from the past year. Then on January 12th, we'll have a brand new episode. No spoilers, but it's a good one. Whether this is your first episode of The Best New Ideas in Money or you're a regular listener, thanks so much for listening. And if there's something you'd like us to look into in the new year, drop us a line. The email is bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. See you in January. Until then, happy holidays and here's to a happy new year. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. Thanks to Mark DeCambry. For more about all the best new ideas in money, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelman. And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Meta Lutzhoff, and Katie Ferguson. Will Stanton mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Mark DeCambry was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next year with more new ideas. 